First Corinthians chapter 14. First Corinthians 14. While you're turning there, first I want to say I'm honored to be asked among so many to um, be part of the rotation in preaching. First Corinthians chapter 14. Also, I want to share something that um, Brother Ann Allen told me about that um, I still think about because most of you know, if not all of you, that I work third shift on Saturday night, so I've been up all night. And so um, we all know the expression nodding off. Do that. Well, he said in the, well, I have to back up and tell you this in case you don't know, but in places of the Caribbean and in Key West, there's a large snail called a conch, C-O-N-C-H, and people like to eat it. And uh, their expression for nodding off is diving for conch. Several times Brother Allen saw me sitting over there diving for conch. So <laughs> I have please ask forgiveness ahead of time in case I do that up here when I'm preaching. First Corinthians 14, we'll be starting at verse 26. First Corinthians 14, 26, but let's bow for prayer first. Father, again, we're thankful that we have yet another opportunity to spend a little time in your word. We're thankful that we don't have to wait just till we're in church to do this, but we're thankful we have it all the time, your word to go to, that we can study and meditate and feed upon it. But we thank you for this time where it can be broken and help us to be fed. We pray that as your children we would hear what we need this morning that would help us in whatever ways that is, in comforting, encouraging, and edifying, building us up as your children to help us to say yes to you and no to self. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 14, beginning of verse 26, and uh, last time we were looking at this uh, passage in chapter 14, uh, we got this far, but the subject is still somewhat similar what Paul is talking about here, um, and we also related to the fact that a lot of the signs that were done specifically for the nation of Israel are no longer necessary in the time we live. However, the overall theme still applies today, that there should be order in the service, and that is when we worship, when we come together. There should be, everything should be done in decency and order, which he talks about, and there shouldn't be chaos. He mentions, you'll see that uh, God is not the author of confusion. He instead is the author of peace. So we should always keep that in mind. So 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, Paul said, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you has a psalm? Uh, we know there's the book of Psalms. It's the old English word for song. Um, it would be like, and, and I, I've heard a lot of you, there's a lot of talented people here that can sing really well, but if all of us say, oh, I want to sing a special, I want to sing an offertory, and we all, and several of us, the service would go on a long time, so we, we, it's, not, it's just not possible for everybody to do that. But he said, how is it uh, that, that you're doing that? Apparently everybody wanted to sing a, a solo. Um, has a doctrine, that is a, a teaching, the word doctrine 
meaning a teaching, something to teach, hath a tongue. And of course, we saw in the beginning of the chapter, as well as in chapter 12, this is the Greek word, Galatha which has been misinterpreted by churches believing this is some ecstatic gibberish of some kind. But the word just means language. Um, and they and some had this ability to speak in a language they had never studied. But how is it he said that everybody has a tongue, has a revelation. Um, right now we have the word of God, but when in the Old Testament there were prophets, God spoke through them, they wrote it down. Then we have those who wrote the New Testament. God gave them the in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says that all, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration, literally God breathed. It was disappointing to me to, uh, not surprising, but disappointing to me when I found a uh, pastor in Florida when I was uh, teaching school in Orlando, went to my sister's wedding and he had gone to seminary, the same seminary I went to, but he was pastoring a Presbyterian church. And uh, I said, well, how is it that you can do that, you know, scripturally? And he said, oh, well, it doesn't matter to me. Um, he said, I believe that any book that's written is inspired the same way the Bible is. Oh my, that's a big difference. <laughs> that's not true, but that's what he believed. So this is inspired by God. It's God breathed. So none of us can, yes, we can get some kind of inspiration and write something, but it's not like this. This is God's inspiration. It is from him. So anyway, he says here a revelation, hath an interpretation. He's going to talk a little bit about that. Back then, if they were going to speak in a different language, the people listening, it wouldn't mean anything to them. It would just sound like gibberish unless somebody interpreted. Then it said, let all things be done unto edifying. Remember, I pointed out how many times we were in the beginning of this chapter. It kept saying done to edification or done to edifying. The word means to build up. So we're talking about Christians being built up spiritually. So we should keep that in mind when we come to worship. The purpose is to build each other up. So that can't happen if there's lots of confusion. Verse 27, he said, if anyone speak, and I said the word one, I know in the King James here it says man, I'm looking at the King James, the word anthropon in the Greek, so it means obviously any human. In this case, we're talking about believers in the church. So if any Christian speak in an unknown tongue, you'll notice the, the word unknown is italicized, which just tells us that it's been interpolated. In other words, the translators that uh, uh, King James ordered the, the Bible to be translated into English from the Hebrew and Greek. And they, um, the seven Puritans and seven Anglicans that were over uh, the translation of it, thought it would be helpful to add the word unknown because it was unknown to the person speaking it. Like I said, it was a language they hadn't studied. But it's not like some language that's never been spoken. It is, is a language and they were able to speak it. So he said, if anyone speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or at most by three. In other words, not everybody has to do it. And he said, and that by chorus, in other words, that in order, not two or three people standing up and all talking at the same time, do it in order. And he says, and let one interpret. In other words, 
make sure there's somebody to interpret. Verse 25, but if there be no interpreter, let him, that is the one who's going to speak in this language that they're speaking, no one else would know what it is, let him keep silence. So that means he can't talk. The subject is speaking in the tongues in this language, another language. If there's nobody to interpret, let him keep silence in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. Verse 29. Let the prophet speak two or three. Remember, in the list of gifts, this is also one of the gifts, the gift of prophecy. Now, um, a lot of people think the word prophecy only has to do with the future, but it's anything God spoke through the prophets. And there was this gift that uh, was in the early church, this gift of prophecy, where they could, uh, God could speak through them. So he said, if... if uh, he said, let the prophet speak two or three. In other words, the same with speaking in tongues. Not everybody, two or three. Let the other, in the King James, we would say others, judge. Listen to what is said. Remember, in uh, 1 John, we're told to try or test the spirits. Back then, it was between whether it's a false prophet or a true prophet. We do the same thing today. We just don't call them prophets. We call them teachers. So regardless whether it's me or Jeff or Jerry or Mark Summers or um, Ken Guth, whoever's up here preaching, we each need to discern whether it is the Word of God, whether it's good teaching or bad teaching. So here we see this. Um, let others judge. Now verse 30. If anything be revealed to another that sits by, let the first hold his peace. In other words, wait. Not everybody talked at the same time. Apparently he's writing this because that's what was going on in this church. Verse 31. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and that all may be comforted. You know, two people are talking at the same time. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation. Two people are talking. Most of us, I, I think you would agree, cannot get both at the same time. Uh, I will share with you that my father now being 82, if I'm talking with him on the phone and my stepmother, since my mom has now been the past 13 years, but so my stepmother will start talking to them and he says, hold on a minute, <laughs> because he can't, he can't concentrate on what I'm saying to him on the phone and listen to that at the same time. So obviously, if we're all going to benefit from it, if we're all going to learn, if we're all going to be comforted, then it helps that it's one by one. Look at verse 32. He says, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So just as it said, well, let others judge. So when we're discerning whether whoever is preaching or teaching that it is the word of God, all of us in teaching it, we're subject to this inspired word of God. So even then in that early, uh, the first century, when they were, those that had the gift of prophecy, was still subject to the prophets. They couldn't contradict it. Um, you might have heard of convenient things where you might know the Mormon church actually believes that this gift of prophecy still exists. So they have the Bible, they have the Book of the Mormon, they have two books of prophecy which they continue to add to. And there was an instance where for um, Brigham Young University, um, where they weren't allowing any African Americans to attend the university and the government said we're going to cut off your federal aid unless you allow it 
And that night, in a dream, the president said God told him to let them in. <laughs> How convenient. So it has to be subject to the word of God. Just as it was then, it is too, today. Verse 33, for God, and I quoted this earlier, but God is not the author of confusion. So if there's confusion, you know God is not the one authoring that. There's a lot of confusion in this world, but it's not from God. Notice what he is the author of, which is said next, but of peace. So you could say God is the author of peace. So peace is the opposite of confusion. You know, you could, you could think of it in this way. We often think the opposite of peace is war. But what causes war? Confusion. All right? It says, as in all the churches of the saints. Wasn't just, he's not just referring only to the church here at Corinth. Some of you may have been to Greece and the, and, uh, the old Corinthian city is still there today. Not too far from Athens. So, let's look at the next part, verse 34. Let your women keep silence. Now, I want to point something out here, because some people say, uh, if you're a woman, you can't say anything in the church. But the subject is still the same in verse 28. Remember about keep silence? Let them keep silence if there's no interpreter? So I believe the subject is here. Now, we have scriptures that teach, I believe, and people say we're closed-minded because of it, that uh, a woman should not be the pastor. It also says that a woman can teach, but uh, she can teach children and other women, but because of the order God has set, that's the way God said it, it wasn't because they were closed-minded, it's what the scriptures teach, and it still applies today, as it did when Paul was writing, and what the scriptures teach. So, but here, let the women keep silence in the church, for it is not permitted to them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also says the law. So that obedience is talking about the head. Now Christ is the head of the church, right? But the head of the woman is the man. We're not closed-minded. <laughs> and I don't mind if people say we are. That doesn't bother me, and I know it doesn't bother you. If a woman doesn't like that, by the way, there's a, there's a, a good reason why. It's, it's part of the curse. Why wouldn't you like, why, why would you like a curse? You know, the curse for the man is to till the ground of the soil, to work for a living. So why would you like that? Why would the woman like having pain in childbirth? So it's a curse, not anything to like, but it's God, just this whole subject of order, it's, it's order, there's order. Now somebody say, well, I don't like that, but the responsibility then falls on the head. The greater responsibility, because he's responsible. Anyway, well, let's go on. Verse 35. If, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for a woman to speak in the church. Verse 36. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it to you only? So what's he saying here? He's, he's asking, you Corinthians, he's writing to the church of Corinth. Are, did the word of God come from you? Did it come from you? No, the answer is rhetorical question. No, it didn't. And did it come only to you? No. The answer is no to both. Verse 37. If anyone think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. 
It's not something Paul was teaching here and writing to the church of Corinth that Jesus didn't already talk about. Now, that goes along with verse 38 because it says, But if any man, in this context we're talking about Christian, if any Christian be ignorant, let him be ignorant. So the idea here is, if any Christian is ignorant or ignoring this commandment or this that Jesus has taught, that Paul's talking about here, then let him be ignorant or let him be ignored by God. Verse 39, wherefore, sums up what he's been talking about here. Brethren, covet, that is desire to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. And then he concludes the whole chapter. Let all things be done decently and in order. So just keeping that in mind. Now, if God permits, I want to spend the last 20 minutes, hopefully to cover chapter 15, but that's up to the Lord. I don't know how far we'll get. All right, moreover, that is in addition, and brethren, speaking to us, believers, I remember I was in a church once that they, they thought the, the Bible was chauvinistic because it says brothers and doesn't say sisters. Um, the old English would be cistern, right? Brother and cistern, not the thing that's a septic tank, but anyway. <laughs> Brother, brothers and sisters, in the, you know what Jesus taught and what Paul writes in his writings? In the church, there's neither male nor female. In that sense, there's no favor. God doesn't place favor. He's no respecter of persons. Regardless of gender, it's all the same in that respect. So, brethren means all of us as believers. He said, I declare to you the gospel, the word, of course, means good news, which I preach to you, which also ye have received. Right? Now he tells what, what the gospel is in, in verses 3 and 4. But he came to them, he told them what it was, they received it. And wherein ye stand, or literally in the Greek, have stood. We could go back to Romans 5 uh, or, and look at verse 2 there. But it talks, he talks there about the grace in which ye stand. And then he goes on to the hope of the glory of God. So we don't have time for all that in this one verse. But... He's talking to them. You you received it. And now in this you have stood or stand. Verse 2. By which also ye are saved. Now, as you know, uh, most churches teach about salvation is just, um, just one thing. They don't understand that salvation, there's past, present, and future. Salvation of the spirit, salvation of the soul, salvation of the body. So often then what they were used see the word saved they don't realize there's more involved notice it says if you keep in memory what I preached to you unless you have believed in vain so this doesn't have to do with somebody who can lose their salvation because they don't keep in memory just uh, about believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior because we know there's the salvation of the soul but then he says in verse 3, 4, meaning because I delivered to you first of all, this is the first thing. I mean, you have to start with believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And he's going to talk about the gospel of grace here. But that wasn't the only good news that he preached. You remember he talked about where he calls it the my gospel, or he refers to it as the my gospel. So, but first of all, that which I also received, what he's talking about there, remember on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus, and then Jesus, the Bible uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus taught Paul in the desert. 
so which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now that phrase there, of course, means the scriptures. In the Old Testament, it was prophesied everything about when Christ would be crucified. Remember, the Jews didn't understand that. Jesus kept telling me, telling them about it, and they didn't understand what he was talking about. They just didn't understand that. They missed it. But he kept telling them, and it was the Old Testament, and everything exactly as the scriptures prophesied, it happened exactly that way. Uh, Jerry did a whole series of lessons not long ago where he pointed out all of those that were fulfilled exactly as the Old Testament prophesied. So it was all according to the scriptures. He died exactly. That literally in the Greek, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. For our sins. That's why he died, the gospel of grace. He died for our sins. Then look at verse 6. And that he was buried. Now, in order to, if you die, then there's the burial. And then that's why the resurrection is important here. And why the rest of chapter 15 is so important for all of us. Because of the resurrection. So, was buried. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There it is again. It was all there and it happened exactly that way. So he first brought them that. He, was, he had it and he told them about it, the gospel. Verse 5. Then it says, And that he, that is Jesus, was seen of Cephas. This is in his resurrected body. After he was resurrected. Jesus was seen of Cephas. That's Peter. Then of the twelve. You might remember the story early in Sunday morning before the sun came up. They were running because um, Mary said, Hey, we went there and the stone's not there and we... You know, we can't find him, and so they all went running, and Peter ran ahead of John. You might remember all the Gospels tell that. So he was seen of Peter, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of, of above, that is, more than 500 brethren at once. It, it, it says, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. He, he's, he means when he's writing this to the church of Corinth, a lot of those that saw Jesus in his resurrected body were still alive physically. And then it says, the end of verse 6, but some are fallen asleep. Now keep in mind, as you know throughout the word, when it uses that phrase, fallen asleep, he's saying some of those that saw him had died at that point. Verse 7, after that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me. So Paul's talking about later, a lot of people don't realize this, Paul, as he was Saul of Tarsus, didn't know Jesus during his ministry, the three and a half years that Jesus ministered on the earth. Paul didn't know him, he met him later. Remember, they weren't called Christians yet, they were called the people of the way, and Paul was on the road to Damascus, the capital of Syria, still the same city today in the country, same country. And he's on up there to arrest more of these people of the way. But something happened on the way, right? He met the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of two due time. So there's a couple of ways you can look at that. When a birth happens and it's not the due date that the doctor said, 
course, it can come early, it can come later. But you know, if, if the doctor said, okay, this is about when it will come, and two weeks later, the mother is getting a little nervous because it's not happened yet. Well, Paul, this was later, he uses this expression, it was an untimely birth. It didn't happen in the sense when all the others saw him, but he, he was born out of due time. Verse 9, Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles. You know, a lot of people look at the life of Paul and they think that he digressed as a believer because he keeps using, you know, he ends up with the last thing, I'm chiefest of sinners. But at the closer we get to God, the more the light of God's light shines. And, you know, think about this. If you have uh, people come over your house to visit and you haven't dusted in the last few days, the more lights you keep off, the less dust people will see, right? That's just way you, you turn on the bright lights. You know when they're really bright, you can see the dust floating in the air. Have you ever seen that? Right? So leave the light out if you don't want people. But so the point is, though, with this light, the closer we are to God, the closer we get to the light, the more we see the dust and the dirt. And so people get the wrong idea about Paul. But, but what he means here, the least of all, of all the apostles, none of them had taken people that were believers and was arresting them to be put to death. Remember the stoning of Stephen. Paul was there. Or he was Saul of Tarsus. All right, so the least of all the apostles that am not meet, the old English word fit, not fit to be called an apostle. And then he tells us why. Because I persecuted the church of God. But notice what he says in verse 10. But by the grace of God. It's only by God's grace that, um, you know, you think of Hebrews chapter 6 where it says, And this we will do if God permit. Talk about, because I know, um, I don't know if all of you 100%, but I know most of you at least know about the deeper things of the word. You know what the meat is. But it's only because God permitted it by his grace. But that just means we have more responsibility because if we know it, then we're more responsible. But he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It wasn't because he deserved to be an apostle. It was because of God's grace. And then he says in his, that is God's grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain. Something good came out of it. But I labored more abundantly than they all. When he gets to 2 Corinthians, he says, he goes on telling about all the things he did. But he's saying, I'm speaking foolishly. That's not what we should do as Christians. Walk around saying, well, I did this and I did that. And I, I, I went through this trouble and I went through that trouble. But in comparison, he's saying of all the other apostles, though he had persecuted the church of God, he worked more, more than all of them. I labored more abundantly than they all, the rest of them. Yet not I, notice he says, it wasn't me, but the grace of God which was with me. Verse 11, therefore, whether it were I or they, the other apostles, so we preach. The word preach just means announce. Um, a lot of people think it has a... Uh, the word preach in the sense of the Greek word, anybody can get up and make an announcement. That's preaching. So we preach, and so ye, and ye is the old English word, it just means you plural. In modern English, 
uh, whether we use you for the singular and the plural. We have to look at the context to, to know whether it's talking to one person or many. But in the Old English, ye was many and you is singular. So he's talking to them. And you believe. Verse 12, now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Because some of them were saying that. But they're preaching Christ raised from the dead. Well, how could they say there's no resurrection? So he's going to talk about that, verse 13. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then that would mean, he says, that Christ is not risen. Now, that would get more implication, which we'd go on. He's doing a hypothetical here. <coughs> Thankfully, it's not true. But if there is no resurrection, as some people say, then Christ didn't rise. Verse 14, and if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is vain. Everything we're preaching about, about Christ was uh, crucified. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose the third day according to the scriptures. Then it's all vain. It has no meaning. And your faith is also vain. What we're trusting in. Verse 15, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. He said we, we're, we're lying. We're not telling the truth if that were the case. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. Whom he raised not up, it so be that the dead rise not. Verse 16, for if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. I know the King James says the reverse order of the words, but same thing. So he's saying if Christ if, if the dead don't rise, in other words, there's no resurrection, then Christ didn't raise. Verse 17, and if Christ is not raised, your faith is vain, and you're still, the word yet, you're yet, or you're still in your sins. We're still just as lost as we ever were, if it weren't for that. Verse 18, then they also which are fallen asleep, our loved ones, in Christ. That's an important phrase, in Christ. We're not talking about everyone. But those who have died in Christ. So he said, if, if there's no resurrection, he's saying, then those also which have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. That's it. Verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. There's a lot of implication to that, but think about it. Verse 20 now. And we only have six minutes. So. But now is Christ risen from the dead. That's a fact. Christ is risen. So that means he rose and he's still alive. He didn't just rise and then he died again. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So um, he resurrected. He's the first fruit, which implies in the analogy of agriculture, there's the harvest and later the gleanings. But he's the first fruits of them that slept. Revelation 7 and 14, I think, have a connection to some of this. Verse 21. For since by man came death, talking about Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. And, and that was the fulfillment. Uh, you know, Christ, the, uh, Adam was the first, and then Christ the second. So one came death, and by one came the resurrection. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, that is, we were all in the loins of Adam, so when Adam fell in sin, we all died 
not physical, right? But we were all then separated from God and needed salvation. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ. There's that phrase again, in Christ. Not people who don't believe in him. To be in Christ means you believe that he died for you. He died for your sins. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. I know some people believe only some of us will be made alive. I don't know where to get that. There's all in my Bible. Verse 23. But every man in his own order. So there's an order to things. He says, uh, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ, that is again in Christ, at his coming. So those who have died in Christ, which you know also from First Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 4, they haven't risen yet. They're, not, they're in heaven, yes, with God. That's where their soul is. Their body has not yet risen but it'll all rise at his coming. Verse 24. Then comes the end. Now, remember in Scripture, this happens a lot. This jumps a thousand years. When he shall have delivered up, that is, Jesus delivered the Son of God, Christ, delivered up the kingdom to God, that's the Father, because it says the Father next, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So, that's the end of the millennial reign. And then it's given to the Father. Verse 25. For he must, that's Jesus Christ, must reign till he have put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, what's that mean? Well, of course, when we're resurrected, we won't die again, but there still be flesh and blood people living on the earth during the thousand-year kingdom. That has to do with the gleanings, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. And if I'm going too fast, I'm sorry, but I know most of you know this. So, they will be flesh and blood people on the earth and still subject to die. There will be physical bodies, not like ours, but are glorified bodies. There will be physical bodies. So eventually, that will be all uh, taken away. Verse 27. But he that put all things under his feet, but when he hath said all, said all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted. That's all but him, right? which did put all things under him. In other words, um, the Father is not under the Son. Verse 28, and when all things shall be subdued to him, that's God, the Father, then shall the Son also himself be subject to him, that's God, the Father, that put all things under him, that's Jesus, that God, the, that's the Father, may be all in all. That's everywhere in every place, every, well, every every place and everywhere verse 29 else what shall oh by the way verse 29 this is going to be hard to do in one minute but okay but i'll try to get a few more verses here all right so else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead now in any scripture because some people you might know just it happens to be the same uh people who believe the mormons actually have baptisms for dead people so some people think, oh, well, it says that there, baptized for death, so we need to... There isn't any other scripture that goes along with what that is. But there are people who do that. Apparently, they were in that first century. Why would they bother if there's no resurrection? That's what I think he's saying, although other people have a different opinion about this. But it's obviously, you can't take this one verse and have a whole um, 
teaching from this one verse that's contrary to the rest of the word. All right, but he says, so they do it, which baptize for the dead, if the dead rise not at all. If there's no resurrection, why would they, those who do this, bother with it? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Verse 30, and why stand we in jeopardy every hour? Now he's talking about Paul and the other apostles. They were in danger. Their lives were in danger constantly in what they were doing. Why would we bother if there's no resurrection? I'll try to do maybe four more verses. Verse 31, I... Protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I da die daily. The word protest here is not the same where we think of protesting to get something, but the word pro as opposed to con, uh, that is for as opposed to against. He's saying, I assure you, by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Now, people have different opinions about what that is, but, but Paul talks constantly about dying to self and that's something we need to do on a daily basis you know a lot of churches talk about okay you come down the aisle and you do this one-time thing and that's it the christian life is dying to self daily all right I'll try to do verse 32 he says if after the manner of men i have fought with beasts at ephesus now if you read acts chapter 19 which I think he's referring to here, there weren't actually wild animals. But the way people were doing, there was a silversmith who was making statues of the goddess Diana. And people were making a lot of money from it. Right? So Paul's talking about, oh, no, no, this you don't need to worship this Diana. That hurt the business, and so they were attacking Paul and the others because of it. I think that's why it refers to him as beast. He said, what advantage is it me if the dead rise, rise not? Why would any of us bother with any of this if there's no resurrection? He said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's what we come to. Is That's quoted from Isaiah, by the way. Isaiah chapter 22, verse 13. So if you just... Say, well, uh, as a lot of people say in the world, um, this is all there is to it. This is this life, so we might as well enjoy life, do whatever, because it's all going to be over. Thankfully, that's not true. Verse 33, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners, which means basically if you hang around with the wrong people, it's going to affect you. And we use that in general in life, but think about it. If you're with other believers who are not believing the word of God and you're not careful... As it says in Second John, then it can you can end up losing what you worked for as far as, far as rewards. And by the way, he's actually quoting from a Greek poet when he says that evil communications corrupt good manners. Um, of course, it was written in Greek. We have it translated in English here. But it, he um, Menander uh, lived from 342 BC to 291 BC. So this was a well-known saying people knew. We'll close with verse 34. Awake to righteousness. Think about, you know, we all get sleepy. We all get tired. This is not talking about physical sleep. And we're already saved. So it's talking to us as believers. Awake to righteousness. That is right living. Doing God's works. Righteousness. And sin not. That literally means in the Greek. And don't keep practicing sin you know just ignoring god and say well i'll do whatever i want and that doesn't mean just doing wrong things but it also can mean 
not doing what we should do. I always think about Hebrews that said, forsake not the assembling ourselves together. It's so easy if we, you know, you miss one Sunday and you miss two Sundays and eventually months have gone by and you probably know other believers that hadn't been to church in a long time. So that's not doing something we should do. We need to fellowship together. We need to encourage one another. And that's why we come together. So we'll finish this verse. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. So that's embarrassing. And we'll close here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we've got to spend a few moments in your word reminding us of these things that were written to the believers in Corinth, which apply to us today. We're thankful that there is a resurrection. And all our loved ones in Christ will be resurrected. And as Paul gets, we know later in this chapter, says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. But Father, we know this mystery that Paul revealed meant that if we're still alive when our Lord returned, that instead of going through death, we'll simply be changed into the same glorified body that our loved one will get. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and his willingness to be obedient, not just to death, but to death on the cross so the penalty for our sin could be paid and that being appropriated to us upon believing in his name. Father, now as our ch children, as your children, we pray that you would help us to awake to righteousness and stop doing what is displeasing to you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.